Uh, Mark chapter 5 is where we're at here today, and I'm going to give you guys a quick little background as to what we're doing with Mark chapter 5. And uh, if you're new here, we've been kind of going through the gospel of Mark, um, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and just letting God speak to us through this great book. And so uh, where we're at today is really in a very unique story. It's, um, it's a very long story. I'm going to actually read through the whole thing. Uh, and uh, it's one of these stories in a lot of ways that it's unique because it uh, has what's called a double plot. And in other words, it's the story of two different lives that don't seem to have a whole lot in common, but they actually intersect along the same plot line, the same theme. And the theme, the main central theme of the story, uh, just like every other central theme of every other little vignette or story in the gospel account of Mark, has to do with Jesus, has to do primarily with the power of Jesus, Jesus' love, Jesus' greatness, Jesus' kingship. And so the whole gospel of Mark is actually about Jesus. But what he does is he interweaves these little stories of people's lives, these narratives. And this story is very, particularly this story is very emotional. It, it really kind of taps into sort of the raw emotional nature and makeup of who we are. It hits us, and I think when you read the story, uh, some of you will relate to it. Some of you will, in maybe some way, see your story, the story of your life to some degree, some shade uh, in this story. And I think Mark actually intends for us to do that. He writes in such a way so that we would somehow relate with this somehow, that we would emotionally connect with the characters in the story, and it's okay to do that, and I think Mark intends for us to do that, because primarily where Mark's going with this story is he wants us to all go to the same place. So whether it's the uh, characters in the story that get to Jesus, or Mark writing this story, so 2,000 years later, uh, an entirely different culture, an entirely different age, an entirely different country, uh, we would read this story and we would get to the same place that Mark intended, which is that we'd get to Jesus, that we would see Jesus. We would see what he is all about, his love, his power, uh, his grace. And so I'm going to read the story and then I'll pray and then we'll get to work on this uh, great story. Uh, we'll pick it up around verse 21 and I'll read down to the end of the chapter. So here we go. And when Jesus had crossed again, in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, his name was Jairus, by name. And seeing him, he fell down at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood of 12 years who had suffered much under the hand of many physicians and had spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather she grew even worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up from behind the crowd and touched the hem of his garments, for she thought or said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd, and he said, Who touched me? Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you ask, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from a ruler's house some who had said, Your daughter is now dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what had said, what, they, what had been said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion of people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? Child's not dead, but only sleeping. And they laughed at him. And he put them aside, and he took the, father, the, he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and they went into where the child was. And then taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, or is translated, little girl, arise. And immediately the girl got up, and began walking. She was only 12 years old. 
And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And they told them to give her something to eat. God, we ask you right now that you would just help us to understand the truths that you want for us to unpack in this. That you would help us to see Jesus. That we would see his power. We would see his love. And that God, at the same time, that um, you would help us to even emotionally com- connect um, with this story and the narrative that this story points us to, to Jesus. God, I pray that you would help us somehow even to be able to see our own narratives swallowed up by this story. More importantly, God, that you would help us to see that even our stories, our narrative, our life story is, is actually of great, great concern to Jesus. Just as this nameless lady was to Jesus and just as Jairus' daughter was to Jesus. That our story, our life is of great value to Jesus. So God, I pray that that truth would God, that it would rock our world, that it would move us, it would uh, change and reorient the desires and the affections of our heart, that we would love you, that we would trust you and see you as a God that actually cares for us. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want to jump in and get to work because we've got a lot of stuff to take a look at here. Like I said, this is a very large passage of Scripture. And so what I want to do first is I want to begin to kind of take a look at some of the characters. And we've already kind of looked at some of them briefly, but I want to jump in a little bit deeper and try to peel back some of the layers and get to know them a little bit further. So the first character that we'll take a look at is, uh, next slide, um, is going to be this guy named Jairus. And um, actually, that's not how the name, the way that you're going to pronounce it, but that's how I'm going to pronounce it because I'm, I'm a white American. And um, so I'll, I'll give you the, the way that the Hebrew probably sounds, or the Greek, I should say, and this is how it was in my little Bible dictionary thing. It says this, Eiros uh, is uh, the way that you'd probably properly pronounce it, but like I said, I'm just going to stick with the typical honky style, which is like gyrus, all right? So if you want to join with me on that, you can. Um, honky style, honky translation. Um, anyways, back on track. Uh, we're told that he was a ruler of the synagogue. And basically what that means is that um, the Hebrew word for this is hazan. Uh, he had these responsibilities of over- overseeing the local congregation. In some ways, he'd be like a local pastor of a small congregation or a small church. Um, and they would vary from town to town. In this particular case, uh, the city that they were in was probably a very small city, maybe not a lot of people there. So this guy would have been known by everybody because this was a predominantly Jewish area, and it was sort of the way it was back, you know, 100 years ago in the culture here where everybody went to the centralized neighborhood church. It's kind of the way it was 2,000 years ago in the synagogue system that everybody who lived in that neighborhood would show up on Sabbath and go to church and, and celebrate and do the things that they would do together. So everybody would know this guy. His name was Jairus. Uh, he was wealthy, no doubt. Most of the time, these guys had a lot of uh, influence and affluence, so they would have been wealthy. Um, he would have been well-respected, and he would have been a dignified teacher. Some of his responsibilities would have been to open the Scripture, to teach God's Word. Uh, he would have been the guy that would have been responsible to blow the shofar. So on just a few hours prior to the celebration of the Shabbat or the Sabbath, this guy would take out his little shofar and start blowing it. It's kind of equivalent to uh, sending out a text message to all your friends. You're like, all right, guys, we're having church. Or to post on his Facebook, here's what the sermon's all about. Kind of like what I do sometimes. And uh, that's, what, that's what he was doing. So his responsibilities were these. Uh, to take care of the, the synagogue and all these other things. So he was a well-known guy in the area. Everybody would have known him. Another thing that's kind of unique to this particular story is that he worked for his higher-ups were basically the temple. So his bosses, if you would, if you would kind of look at it that way, the people that voted him into office, the people that gave him the authority, uh, would have been people that worked for the religious system out of uh, the temple system in Jerusalem. So, um, and what we already know about that is that, for one, it's corrupted. For two, these people did not have a very high opinion of, guess who? Jesus. So for this guy to actually go out of his way to basically grovel in front of Jesus, begging Jesus to come to his house to heal his daughter, he was actually putting his entire job and his reputation on the line. He could have lost absolutely everything, but desperate circumstances oftentimes cause for desperate, calls for desperate needs. And that's where this guy was at. He had these desperate needs. He resorted to desperate uh, circumstances, desperate ways, and that's what he did. So he goes out of his way to find Jesus, even knowing that it's probably going to put him and his job in some sort of jeopardy. The second character that we see in the story is a lady that we don't know her name. She's just nameless. In all the gospel accounts, there's no name given to her, which in a lot of ways just is, is 
just sort of in sync with the way the culture would have viewed this lady. She was nameless. She was a nobody. In other words, nobody cared about her. She was just somebody that the culture uh, would have just simply isolated. People would have just kind of uh, relegated off to the margins of society. People would not have liked her for several reasons. Um, for one, we're told in the story that she was a woman. That already is a strike against you in that ancient male-dominated, in some ways, chauvinistic culture. So secondly, we're told that she was um, unclean because of a disease that she had. We don't know exactly what it is. Any speculation is just that. Speculation. She had some sort of an ongoing chronic flow of blood, whatever that means. And so the problem is with that is that according to ancient law, any type of blood loss from your body, whether because you had a scab or you know, a woman was on her time of the month or something like that, would actually put you into the category where you are not clean. So if you had scabs or open wounds or if you're a female on your time of the month, you actually were not allowed to go worship God in the temple and be a part of the actual uh, social religious system of the day until your flow of blood is finished, until your scabs were healed, and until your flesh wounds were completely taken care of because blood was sacred. So any loss of blood was sort of a loss of life, and it was sort of viewed as that. So therefore, this lady, for 12 years, has had this ongoing chronic flow of blood. So therefore, that would meant that for 12 years, she was completely ostracized, completely outcast from any type of social life within the culture of people. So anybody that had known this dark, deep little secret of this lady would have completely written her off. If you were a dude in that culture looking for a suitable mate, you wouldn't go to her. If you're a guy trying to find someone that you can partner up with, make a wife, to be the mother of your children, no one would go to her. She was the woman that you would simply push away. You would just try as best as you can to not think about her. And that's who this lady was. She was not thought of. She was unclean. She was an outcast, poor, no doubt depressed. And the other thing that Mark tells us a little bit about is that she had sort of this quasi-superstitious faith. Um, she comes to Jesus saying, if I can just touch his garment, his clothing, I can be made whole. Which, according to ancient Hebrew custom and culture, that's just, it's just weird. Like, Jews didn't think that way. They didn't look at touching someone's hem of the garment was somehow going to make them clean. That Jesus actually corrects that, but we'll see that in a moment here. So her faith, um, even though there was faith, because Jesus goes on to tell her that your faith made you whole, her faith was kind of funky. It wasn't, it, it was in some ways misplaced, but there was a kernel enough of faith to believe that Jesus could do it no matter how quasi-weird it was. Jesus accepted it and actually healed her. So that's sort of the cast of characters that we have. What I want to do right now is I want to begin to sort of take a look at deeper into the story because Mark writes this whole story with one objective in mind, and it's to help us to see Jesus so that we would have confidence in him, or to put it another way, so that we would trust Jesus. So what he does is he uses these stories, uh, these two plot lines of two different people in some ways completely different from each other, but at the same time, in some ways, very similar, because they both had a lot of pain. They both had found themselves in the middle of life's circumstances where it was very tough, it was very hard. One person had a chronic ailment, one had a more acute ailment, a more acute disease. And so what we need to see is that Mark wants us to understand that these two storylines, these two plot lines cross, and yet point to Jesus. And Mark wants us to see Jesus in the middle of these deeply emotional uh, stories. And so what Mark, I think, wants us to do is he wants us to realize that faith or trust or confidence in Jesus involves at least three things that we'll take a look at. The first thing we'll take a look at is that faith involves trusting Jesus' timing. Secondly, we'll take a look at faith involves trusting Jesus' power. And finally, faith involves trusting Jesus' love. And each of these hopefully will begin to come very clear and kind of filled out within the stories we take a look at. So first, let's take a look at faith involves trusting Jesus' timing. Now, in some sort of reiteration of the story, which I got to go back to just make sure that you guys catch this, here's what happens. Jesus gets off of a boat and he's immediately met by this guy named Jairus, which we just talked about. And so he's, like I said, putting his reputation on the line. And uh, he's willing to go out of his way to track Jesus down because, like I said, his daughter's dying. And so what he does when he finds Jesus, he, 
he's desperate. He comes to Jesus and says, my daughter is on the verge of death. And literally the, uh, the Greek language that he uses, uh, the way that Mark records it for us, is that he says, my daughter is, is on the verge of death. This isn't just like she's got a fever and, you know, can you just come heal her fever? It's that she's absolutely on the verge of death. And like I said, I think Mark wants to sort of put ourselves into the characters here. And when I think about this, here's a guy, he's a pastor. He's got a 12-year-old daughter. Now, for me, personally, my, my daughter just turned 13 back in December. So in some ways, in a lot of ways, I can relate to this. The thought of actually having a daughter that is on the verge of death is, is absolutely devastating to me. To, to, to see your beloved child, the one that you love, um, or your children suffering and going through something so tragic like this, you can just feel the pain, feel the emotion with regard to this. And, and here's Jairus. He knows his daughter is dying. And it's not just the fact that he can just call someone up and say, get Jesus down here fast. I'll pay you anything. It's that they don't have any form of communication. So Jairus himself has to leave his dying daughter with his devastated wife. can't even imagine this. The thought of me having to leave my house with my dying daughter in a bed with my wife who's absolutely probably frantic at that moment, but I've got to be strong. I've got to do what I can somehow to stay strong, to figure out some sort of a path or to navigate my way through some sort of means of finding help. And so Jairus goes out of his way, tracks Jesus down. He doesn't know what Jesus is going to do. He knows that Jesus at this point is literally just the man of the hour. Everybody's following him. Everybody's tracking Jesus down. And yet in his mind, he's thinking, I have no idea, but I've got to try. So he tracks Jesus down, tells Jesus his story. Jesus says, let's go. So Jesus reorients everything, begins to follow Jairus to his house. And as they're moving, there's this big, massive crowd. Now, the crowds by this time have grown very large. People want to see a miracle. So they're not really following Jesus because they actually love Jesus, but because they want to see a miracle. And so what happens is they're walking through the crowd. Jesus, um, what, what takes place is because Mark introduces us to the second character. She comes in. She knows that or believes that Jesus can heal her. She makes her way into the crowd to where Jesus is at, touches the hem of his garment, and Jesus stops. She's healed, but Jesus stops. And it doesn't even say he touches his leg or anything, but touches his garment. It's like someone touching your clothes. clothes. And then Jesus stops. He's like, who touched me? That's equivalent to going to a concert in a mosh pit, having 100 people in two square feet, being touched by hundreds of people saying, stop the music, somebody touched me. Like, who touched me? Your friends are like, are you nuts? Everybody's touched you. Like, everybody. In two square feet, everybody's touched you. Jesus stops the crowd. This is insane what Jesus does. But he's like, no, no, no. Something's happened. Someone's touched me. So imagine, okay, we'll come back to this lady in a second here. Jesus stops everything. Back to Jairus. What do you think Jairus is feeling? He's desperate. This is absolutely amazing here because when you take a look at the scenario, what happens is Jesus heals this lady and then ends up going with Jairus and then heals the daughter. We'll get more to that in just a second. But here's what's happening here. Jesus' timing is, is just, in some ways you can even look at this, in some context you can almost even say what Jesus is doing in this context is equivalent to malpractice. Let me give you an example. If you worked in an ER, if you were part of a doctor's office or you were in part of some sort of scenario where you go in the doctor's office or in the ER and someone comes in and they're an amputee victim. They lost a limb. They're bleeding profusely. It's an absolute emergency. If something doesn't happen quick, they die. And then someone comes in, they're like, what's up, man? I've got really bad hangnails and I've had them for like 12 years. The doctor's like, oh, no way. I do too. Let's talk about this. And they're like, I use like good lotion. And it starts talking with this guy, like empathizing with him, like talking with him, and just they're sharing life stories. Like, yeah, I hate it. You know, it hurts. And yeah. And all of a sudden, he's like, well, let me heal you. And heals him. And then in the process of this little dialogue between doctor and, you know, hangnail victim, the acute, the person with the acute emergency dies. That's malpractice. Here's what happens. The daughter dies. What do you think went through Jairus' mind? 
I, mean, I, I can only imagine if it was me, if it was me knowing that my daughter had this acute circumstance and that it was absolute desperate moment and I needed Jesus to be fast. I needed Jesus to move quickly. I needed Jesus to be operating in a, in a way that was way faster than what he was moving, what he was doing. And then all of a sudden to have Jesus stop and to begin to start talking to this lady who has this chronic issue, which chronic basically means she can wait 15 minutes or even 15 days. It's no big deal. She's been bleeding for 12 years. She's going to continue to bleed for 12 more days. It's all good. She's not going to die, but my daughter will. And his daughter dies. And what you have here is, is a picture of the delays of Jesus. And I think what Mark wants us to feel, he wants us to feel this. Because some of us, the reality is, this is where you're at today. This is your life. This is the description of where you're at. Because you've wondered, like, God, why have you not pulled through now? Why has the business not picked up now? Why have we not been able to make the money yet to pay for our bills now? Why have I not been able to get married yet? Why have I not been able to have the children yet? Why have not, has not my sickness or my disease passed yet? Why have not all these circumstances that I've been begging you for, praying you for, asking you for, doing making bargains and deals with you for, you've not done anything. You've not operated. You've not moved. You've not acted. It's possible you might be encountering the delays of God. That's what was going on here. God delayed. Here's the problem is, though, is that we oftentimes interpret wrongly God's delays with the fact that God doesn't care. And if you were in that in that story, in that crowd, would you not think that Jesus didn't care? I would. If it was me, if that was my daughter, and she died, someone came up to me, and I got Jesus, I got the great physician, the great master whose miracles, stories have been being told all around, I'm walking back with Jesus, and all of a sudden Jesus stops, lollygags, hanging around, talking with this girl, all chit-chat, and just, just taking his good old time, and then my daughter dies? I would, I would be devastated. I would... I would fall on the ground weeping. That's what I would do. And I would question, God, why? Why have you done this? Why have you, you could have, you could have moved faster. You could have intervened. You could have involved yourself, and you didn't. That's what was going on. Mark wants us to feel that. I think it's part of the story that he wants us to understand. And it's really this idea that I think what Jesus does is as if he looks to Jairus, because right after these people come up, and they tell Jairus, your daughter's dead. You don't need to bother Jesus anymore. Um, Jesus overhears this story, and then Jesus, we're told in the story, just listen to what he says. It says, um, why trouble the teacher any further? Because she's already dead. But then Jesus, overhearing what they had said, he looked at the synagogue ruler, and he says, don't fear, but believe in me. In some ways, I can only imagine the way that Mark writes this is that what he does, he writes in such a way as if Jesus is looking at Jairus, but then for an instant he looks past Jairus to us, to our circumstances, to the moments of question that we have about God and his timing and his delays, why? As if Jesus would look to us and just say, don't be afraid. Just believe me. And it's almost as if Jesus would somehow fill this out by saying, I will not be constrained. I will not allow you to impose your subjective understanding of time upon me. And it's not as if, it's as if Jesus would say something like this as well. It's not that, yes, I will delay certain things and I love you. But it's as if Jesus is going to say something like this, is that, yes, there are delays because I love you. But you don't get it. We don't get it. None of us get it because this is the story of our lives. If we find ourselves in these circumstances, 
we don't have the privilege the way we do by reading the story because we know the punchline. We know where all this goes. We know Jairus' daughter gets raised from the dead. We know this lady with the flow of blood gets healed and everything looks good, looks great in the end. And we're like, oh, great little Bible story. Let's go home, throw it up on the felt board and we'll talk about it. And nice little story. We'll just chit-chat about it over, you know, tri-tip sandwich at Firestone. But the reality is if we look at our own lives and realize this is where we are at in a lot of ways, we're deeply confused and troubled full of anxiety because we don't understand why Jesus is doing what he's doing but he looks to us and he says don't be afraid believe me trust me place your confidence in me the second thing that I think Mark wants us to really understand as well is this because let me say one more thing about this because let me, let me put it this way if you seek to force your finite understanding under the timing of Jesus, you will never, ever, ever enter into the peace and the shalom that God has, and it will be your fault. All the time. Because at the end of the day, here's what happens. The reason why we struggle with this is because we assume that we should have control over our time. We wrongly assume that, because you're not God. We're not God. We don't have a power over time, but he does. And Mark wants us to be aware of this, that he does have power over time. And it's not just this sort of arbitrary flex of infinite power, but this is, this is the God of all power who also is balanced by his love. We'll take a look at that in a second. So the next thing I want to really take a look at as well, that Mark wants us to also realize that faith does also involve trusting in Jesus' power. And this is interesting because in a lot of ways it's actually contrasted by his weakness. And Mark tells us something very interesting in the storyline here, especially with this gal um, who's nameless. And what happens is when she comes to Jesus, she touches Jesus, and Mark says that power went out from Jesus. Very unique phrase. Power went out from Jesus? What does that mean? Um, it's the first time actually in the book of Mark that this word dunamis, we get the word dynamite, dynamic from, that actually something goes out of Jesus, he experiences a loss or a weakness of some sort in order to give strength to this lady who had none. So in other words, there's some level of weakness that Jesus engages in order for this lady to be made whole or to be given strength. Uh, Paul picks up on a theme, a similar theme like this in 2 Corinthians 13, 4. He says this, for he, Jesus, was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of the living God. So in other words, uh, there's this contrast in the New Testament between the power, this infinite power of Jesus uh, coupled with this weakness of Jesus, in which Jesus engages, in which Jesus allows himself to become weak, which is, if you just chew on that for a moment, that's, that's profound. That's amazing. Like, when you think about an infinite, powerful God that could also allow himself to take a hit, to take an, a, a powerful hit from created beings and feel that, that's amazing. But this is what Mark wants us to observe with regard to Jesus as well. But notice the power, Jesus' power with regard to uh, Jairus' daughter. So here's what happens. Jesus then goes in to the room. Now, it's kind of an interesting scenario. He goes in. Everybody's crying, typical in ancient um, uh, Middle Eastern cultures. When someone would die, they would oftentimes hire like a professional squad of people that would come out. They'd play these loud trumpets. And oftentimes, you know, in our culture, when someone dies or there's some sort of a death in a family, oftentimes what happens is we try to suppress our feelings and, you know, we dry our tears and what happens, and, and we try to downplay a lot of um, real strong emotion. But in ancient cultures, they, they wouldn't do that. In fact, they would play these loud horns to kind of go along or override the loud wailing of people that were really feeling deep pain. And so what was happening, Jesus comes in this scenario. He sees all these people crying because this young little daughter, 12 years old, is now dead. Um, and he walks into the room, and he basically says, why are you guys crying? They're like, are you kidding? Uh, you know, the little girl died. She's not dead. She's just sleeping. And this has kind of stumped a lot of theologians. But in reality, what Jesus is doing is using a metaphor. A metaphor oftentimes, uh, sleep is a metaphor for death in the New Testament. 
Um, and so what happens is Jesus then walks into this room, sits down next to the bed. He brings in with him kind of a little entourage. He brings in Peter, James, and John. Uh, Jairus comes in, and then Jairus' wife. So it's Jesus, uh, his three main disciples, and mom and dad, and then the daughter who has passed away. And there she is lying on the bed. Jesus sits down next to her, and what he does is he takes her by the hand, and he just simply lifts her hand, but then he looks her in the eyes, perhaps, and then he says these simple words. Talitha kumi. And some translations of this and some ways in which this has been understood, it's kind of an interesting thing. It's, there's not a lot of times in the New Testament you'll see just the original Aramaic given. Uh, most Bible scholars believe that Jesus actually didn't speak Greek, but that he probably spoke Aramaic, which would, would have been kind of a derivative or a variation of Hebrew. So here's Jesus speaking Aramaic. And some scholars believe the reason why they didn't change this, they didn't interpret this or translate this, I should say, into the Greek, is because it was so profound. It left such a deep, deep impression upon the disciples as they watch this. Jesus just sits down with her and he says, Talitha kumi, and some have translated it this way. It's just kind of this phrase of saying, time to get up, little girl. And it's a phrase that a mom and dad would say, like if you had a child that went and took a nap in the middle of the day and you sit down at the end of the bed, and I do this sometimes in the morning when my, ch- my children wake up, even with my, my high schooler, I'll sit down next to her and I'll rub her forehead and I'll just rub her arm and rub her back and, and you know, they're and it's just rousing them out of sleep. And I'm like, sweetheart, it's time to wake up. What Jesus does, the tenderness of the infinite God that has hurled the planets into their existence, sits down, holds the hand of an unnamed girl, and just simply with the most tenderness of voice says, my little sweetheart, it's time to raise up, to wake up. He lifts her by the hand, and she steps up off the bed, and she's alive. She's passed from death to life. And I think Mark wants us to catch the infinite power of who's in the room there. That what Jesus does is amazing. This is Jesus who, just the chapter before, the earlier few verses before, he, with a voice, calms a hurricane. And then later he casts out literally an army of demons just by speaking. Demons leave. Storm, be calmed. And all of a sudden now, he looks at Jesus, or Jesus looks at this little girl who is literally confronted by the greatest enemy of humanity. And I think we would all agree death is by far the greatest enemy of all humanity. Agree? I mean, death and disease, or disease, definitely an enemy, but not everybody is always going to get sick to the point where you're going to die. Some of you guys. I don't know why, but you got good, healthy bodies, and you don't get sick that often. So some of you are lucky, and you don't get sick. Others of us, every one of us, though, will die. All of us. It's the number one enemy. Jesus confronts this enemy, not by an incantation, not by whipping up a spell, not by abracadabra, not by just working up a sweat even, by sitting on the edge of bed. He holds this girl by the hand. He says, rise. And I think the picture that Mark wants us to understand, the most profoundest of all of our enemies, in the presence of Jesus, when he's holding our hand, is like waking a little child up from a nap. And maybe that's what's happened to some of you. Some of you are trying to figure out, like, what does it mean to be a Christian? That is what it means to be a Christian. Jesus woke you up from your dead. He woke you up from the grave. He called your name. He caused you to rise, and you rose. It's amazing. That's what Jesus does with this little girl. But the weakness and the power metaphor is amazing. The reason why we know that Jesus can just simply take a girl by the hand and raise her up and heal her and bring her back to life is simply because by the end of the book, again, Mark does these little sort of like zoom in, take a look at these pictures, and then you step back and you look at the whole narrative of the story. The reason why we know that Jesus can uh, do this to this little girl by just simply taking her by the hand and raising her is because by the time we get to the end of the book, what we see is something very interesting about Jesus. Is What we know with the storyline, the narrative of Jesus, is that Jesus throughout all eternity past has been in loving harmony 
rhythm, fellowship with his Father throughout eternity past. Throughout all eternity, the Father has always held the hand of the Son. But Mark tells us something, that on the cross, in a moment, in an instant in time, that fellowship, the hand that the Father had in the hand of the Son, in an instant was broke. The thought of a child losing the hand of a father in the middle of a crowd is absolutely frightening. Maybe you've ever, maybe you've been there. It's kind of a funny thing because, you know, we as, you know, as human beings, we can think back like, oh, the safest place that I ever had when I was young was just holding the hand of my dad. And, and if you thought that, you, you, you need to know, you're like, you were actually wrong, right? You know that, right? Because even holding the hand of your dad, even though your dad was like the best dad in the world, he still wasn't perfect. And he still could get, like, hit by a car and die even while you're holding your hand. So even though you thought you were, like, infinitely safe, you still were not infinitely safe, even holding dad's hand, because your dad wasn't God. But you may have thought higher of him than he really was. But the point I'm making is this. You felt safe. Imagine how safe the son felt holding the hand of his infinite father, who is infinitely good. To lose touch with that hand would have been hell. The son lost the hand of the father for a brief moment there on the cross. Death overcame him. And it was because the son lost the hand of the father that he actually is able to take the hand of us lost sons and daughters and hold us and raise us from death to life. That Jesus, the king, went from life to death and back to life again so that we who know nothing but death can be brought from death to life. It's absolutely amazing. This is what Jesus does. This is where Mark wants to go with this. But the final thing that Mark wants us to know is that faith not only involves trusting in Jesus' timing, it also involves trusting in Jesus' power, but also involves trusting in Jesus' love. I've said this before, because really at the end of the day, when we just think about raw power, there's nothing like emotionally stimulating about raw power other than fear, right? If you're like in the presence of like raw power, right? Say you're going to like Diablo, like in the middle of a nuclear power plant, you're like, I'm in love. Like that's not what you think. You're like, I'm, I'm going to die. I'm holding things that are fluorescent like Homer Simpson. And this is not good. And like, there's, like there's nothing heartwarming about being in the midst of raw power. In fact, it's frightening. But if that raw power also happens to be morally good and working in your favor, <laughs> you got a combination that's worth giving your life for. Here's what Mark wants us to know about Jesus, that he's loving. So check this out. It's amazing. We begin to see sort of this story um, kind of unfold in kind of an interesting way in which this idea sort of comes to pass. Um, Tim Keller in his book, The King's Cross, actually says something to this effect, not exactly like this, but something like this. He says basically this, that God's love um, will ultimately always make demands upon us that are far more than what we can ever or ever thought of giving. But conversely, he will also always give to us far more than we ever thought we could receive. And with that concept in mind, I, I want you to listen to the story, how it unfolds, and it shows us something of the beauty of Jesus' love, beginning with the lady. Okay, so here's the lady, unnamed lady. We don't know who she is. Uh, she comes up to Jesus. All she wants, all she has in her mind, her expectations are nothing more than touching Jesus, getting healed, and leaving. That's all she wants. She doesn't want to be known. Remember, she's a defiled lady. She's an outcast. Nobody wants her. She's been someone that no one has ever said anything to. No one's maybe given her a hug. No one's loved her. No one's uh, put their arm around her. No one's sat down and had dinner with her perhaps for 12 years. She's a social outcast because of the condition that she has had come against her, perhaps by no fault of her own. Uh, she feels defiled. But here's what happens. Jesus stops and he calls her out. There's this crowd, hundreds, perhaps thousands of people trying to touch Jesus this lady touches Jesus. Something unique happens. She gets healed. She probably just wants to touch and leave, but Jesus stops and says, no, 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 no. Who touched me? And the lady's like, probably doesn't want to say anything. She's freaking out like, that's me. She knows it's her, but Jesus calls her out. He's like, no, no, no. Who touched me? Someone touched me. Someone 
something happened from me that changed you. I need to know who you are. And she comes out of her hiding. Here's what Jesus says. It's absolutely amazing. It says in verse 22, but he looked around to see uh, who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened, had come in in fear and trembling and then fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And here's what Jesus said. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. All this lady wanted was to be healed and move on. Jesus made a demand of her that was far more than she could ever even imagine. Jesus calls her out and says to a lady who has quasi-funky faith and sees the opportunity of actually making her into a full-fledged disciple that understands what faith is all about. So here's what Jesus says. My garment didn't heal you. Your faith healed. Your confidence in me, your trust in me, the fact that you trusted in me is what healed you. Jesus is not a magician. His clothes are not magic. And it's kind of funky things, the way we work. It's straight up just paganism. Jesus says, no, that, that, that didn't heal you. Your confidence, your faith in me is what healed you. But she didn't expect to give that much. She just wanted to leave. But she ended up receiving something far more than she ever even dreamed of too. Jesus will always demand more of you than what you've ever expected of giving. But he will always give to you something far more than you've ever imagined can be given to you. So here's what happens. She just wants a healing. But Jesus then turns to her and says, not only am I going to give you healing, but he uses a word that I think is life-changing. He looks at her and he says, daughter. This is a woman who for at least 12 years of her life has been castigated, pushed off into the margins, shunned, run from, gossiped about, Rumors spread about, slandered. Her reputation was non-existent. She was a lady that did not even have any dignity left. She felt defiled. She felt disgusting. She felt horrified. She wanted to run. She didn't want to be known. She just wanted to be unnamed. And that's the way Mark puts her. But Jesus says, I won't have that. I want to give to you something far more than you can ever imagine. I'll give you your healing, but what I will give you even on top of that, it's even greater than that, that nobody can ever give you except me. So I'm going to give you your dignity back. He gives her her dignity back. Some of you ladies need to know this. We live in a culture today that is so twisted, especially along the sexuality lines, we live in a culture that feeds people's minds pornographic images from the time that they're age 12. The number one age range of people getting involved in porn is between age 12 to 18. That's how young kids start. So from age 12, they're feeding their minds full of porn. They're looking at nameless women. They don't know who they are, but it doesn't matter because they bring pleasure. And what happens is it taints, it rewires the way that a guy thinks about a woman. What ends up happening is that a man now begins to mistreat a woman, doesn't treat her in the proper way, doesn't treat her with dignity, value, and respect because he treats her the way that he's been trained to treat her and speak to her and act towards her and do things to her because that's what he's been trained since a young age on how to deal with women. And what has happened repeatedly, perhaps to maybe many of you women in this room, is that you have lost your sense of value and dignity. And you feel the pain, you feel the shame, you feel the defilement, it's deep. You don't want people to know about it. You want to just remain as far and as distant as you can because you're absolutely devastated and fearful that somebody, some way, will begin to at some point find you out and that's the last thing you want. And men, you need to know this, that a lot of ways us as men, we can play into this. We contribute to the defilement of women and, and this it happens. This is one of the reasons why, especially guys, I mean, I know gals also struggle with porn as well, but especially you guys, it rewires the way that you think about women and it causes you to bring defilement over them and onto them to the point where they lose all sense of dignity and value and respect. They're just nameless people. They have no identity. And Jesus comes and he says to this woman, daughter, you have your healing, but I'm also giving you dignity. 
Jesus will always demand of you far more than you ever expect to give, but he will also always give to you far more than you ever even dreamed of. And we see the final same thing with Jairus. I'm done with this is because he comes and he just simply wants his daughter to be healed. He comes to Jesus. Jesus, heal my daughter. But through the delays of Jesus and the death of his daughter, what does he get? He doesn't get a healing. He gets a resurrection. What are the delays of God in your life? What are they? I mean, you know what they, what they are. You know what circumstances they are. And we're all prone to misjudge God based upon our limited knowledge. And I think the question that Mark keeps pressing upon us, he wants us to wrestle with, he wants us to be challenged with, is this larger concept is if that this God who is all-loving and this God who is all-powerful and this God, this God who is willing to make himself of great weakness, if he's this great and this loving, does he not also have control over our days, our seasons, our years, our lives? What Mark wants us to understand is that, yes, he does. It's the, that's the point. Yes, he is loving. Yes, he is powerful. But yes, he also has a time frame. And oftentimes, his time frame sparks up against ours. And it's usually because what happens is we tend to have a false swagger about our lifestyles. And we think we know more and better than God. And what happens is we find ourselves in that conflict. And we wonder why has God not done something quicker or sooner or faster. And we find ourselves frustrated by these things. And yet these delays oftentimes teach us, they teach us to rest in the fact that God actually is in control of these things, that he does love us. That's what I want you to know, that yes, our sin is great. And yes, we've done things that have brought offense, but what the gospel is is that Jesus had paid those prices for us so that we can be set free, so that we can know God's great love coupled with God's great power. That's the point. So I'm asking you, what are the circumstances in your life that might be God stirring up in your heart to press you into Jesus, to trust him? I'm gonna pray. We're gonna finish. The guys are gonna come up. We're gonna sing some songs of worship. We'll partake of communion. What I wanna challenge you with is this. Maybe there's areas in your life that maybe... God is calling you to repent from because you've held things against God that you just don't have all the insight. You don't have all the information. And God's just saying, trust me. Just like he did to Jairus. Don't be afraid. Trust me. That a God who's this great, who's this loving, who's this powerful, is he not also able to be trusted for his delays? I think that's the point that Mark wants us to deal with. So I'm going to pray. Some of us, perhaps all of us, need to just really chew on this and think about this and meditate upon this. And uh, we'll sing, partake of communion, worship. Let's do it. Jesus, we thank you for the cross because the cross shows us how great of love that you've poured out upon us. And so, God, right now we want to confess sin to you. We want to just lay our lives down before you and we want to worship you. Thank you for grace. Guys, as we worship, just I invite you in to, to meet with Jesus. Um, if, if you're family, you want to bring your kids in here, that's totally fine. Uh, as we try to encourage you guys, just be aware of the fact that it's dark in here. So if you can please just hold on to your children or keep them close to you. If not, we have a little room back there. You're more than welcome to go in there. Partake of communion with them. Worship Jesus with them. We invite that. We welcome you to do that. Please just be... Uh, courteous to other people as well as the darkness in here as well. So we're going to sing, worship, confess sin, partake communion together. Let's do it.
your grace, your fragrance is intoxicating in a secret place. Cause your love is extravagant. Spread wide in the arms of Christ. Love that covers sin. No greater love have I ever known. You consider me a friend and capture my heart again. Capture my heart again.
Jesus, we just give you thanks that you have redeemed us, you purchased us with your blood, you took our place, you bore our sin, our shame. You who have known nothing but holiness bore my my defilement. God, so that we can be free, so that we can be set free. We who are oppressed can know liberty. That we who have known nothing but defilement can know what it feels to be pure and be holy. So that we who have lived our lives in tears and suffering and pain and anxiety can be set free and liberated from those things to discover your shalom, your peace. God, we pray right now that you would just direct our hearts towards Jesus, who accomplished all this for us. The free to us was of great cost to him, absorbed by him. And God, for that, we say thank you. Lord, now as we uh, scatter, as we gather, we love this, but as we scatter, as we go back into our neighborhoods, into our communities, all along the coastlands, God, we ask you that you would empower us, strengthen us to live out the gospel. We've been given a great commission. We have a great God uh, who has called us to live this message. So help us, we pray right now, to do that effectively for your glory, for our joy, us trusting you even when it's tough, and us expecting the fact to give far more than what we would ever imagine. But in return, we'll gain far more than what we could ever even dream. So thank you for that. So God, send us out of right now by the power of your name, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.